All right, I appreciate that good singing tonight. Let's open our Bibles, Genesis chapter number 29. Genesis chapter number 29 tonight. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Genesis chapter number 29. And I want to preach to you for a few moments this evening on the life of Leah. Now, I'm not talking about my wife when I say Leah, although she is named Leah. And we might mention uh, her sister Rachel. But when I do, I'm not talking about Miss Rachel. Amen. So... And uh, you just keep that in mind this evening, because I might say some mean things about one or the other, amen, and I don't want you to think I'm talking about them tonight. Genesis chapter number 29, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 30. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you're probably familiar with this section of Scripture, and you probably know how that uh, Jacob was deceived into serving for seven years. Uh, he was uh, he was not deceived into serving for seven years. He wanted to serve seven years to pay the bride price to pay the dowry uh, for Rachel. And that's who he wanted to marry. And then at the end of that seven years, he finds out from his father-in-law Laban uh, that he has not been married unto Rachel, but rather unto her older sister Leah. And uh, so Jacob then begins to serve seven other years uh, so that he can uh, be married to Rachel. And uh, somebody said, now preacher, there's there's uh, double marriage and plural marriage and things like that, polygamy in the Bible. And uh, that's true. Uh, but I will say this for uh, for Jacob's part, the whole time he's just trying to marry that one girl. Somebody say amen to that. He got tricked into marrying two, uh, but he certainly it wasn't his idea from the beginning, amen. And uh, But he winds up marrying both of these sisters. And uh, the Word of God details for us uh, exactly the problems that that caused in their home, uh, but what God did through it as well. So let's begin reading Genesis chapter 29, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 30. And the Bible says of Jacob that he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you'd speak to the hearts of your people, that you'd take your word. I know that, Lord, you have the ability and the wisdom to wield it deftly in our hearts and accurately and effectively. And I just pray that you'd do that work tonight. Show us if there may be anything that uh, stands at aught between us and me. And Lord, I pray that tonight if there's anything that we can do or allow you to do that draws closer unto you, I pray you'd make it known to us that you'd help us develop us in our walk with you and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there are a lot of fascinating features as we study through the life of Leah and of Rachel and particularly as we approach these early days of their 
marriage. Uh, Jacob undoubtedly felt some bitterness, some resentment over the fact that he'd been deceived by his father-in-law Laban. And it appears that Joseph, carnal a man as he was, and Joseph was not, or excuse me, Jacob was not always the, the most spiritual feller on the block. Jacob, carnal as he was, he uh, took out that disappointment and that resentment, it would seem, in his relationship with Leah. Uh, the Bible uses the term on several occasions here that Leah was hated. Now, it's possible this could mean a couple different things. There are times when the Bible uses the terms love and hate comparatively speaking or as a comparison with each other. For instance, when the Bible says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. does not mean that Jacob, uh, that, that God despised or had personal animus uh, towards Esau, but rather that of the two boys, God had favored Jacob. Although, can I make this observation tonight? Isn't it interesting that the boy that was loved above his brother from the womb did not recognize when a person felt less than loved by his own action? You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I'd say this, you know, sometimes we develop blind spots. Sometimes we've had it so good, we just can't imagine what another person's going through. Sometimes we have to be deliberate in our empathy, in our compassion, in our patience with one another. It's perfectly understandable that Jacob wouldn't know what it's like to treat someone second class because he hadn't been treated second class. Esau would have understood it. Now I'm saying to you tonight, we better be mindful because sometimes we can treat people a certain way and not even understand that we're doing it. Jacob had grown up and he had been favored by God. But I don't think this necessarily means that God had a personal animus or personal dislike of Esau. Rather, it seems as though God was infinitely patient with Esau and sought to develop Esau along. But as far as the lineage of the Messiah and the direction that God was going to take in bringing about His promises, He chose Jacob. So it's possible when the Bible speaks of Leah being hated, it does not mean that she was uh, despised with personal animus. Uh, it's possible that it simply means that she was not favored in the way Rachel was. But let me say this tonight, I think there's another way we can understand that. Uh, the Bible does not necessarily say that Jacob hated Leah. It says that Leah was hated. You say, what's the distinction, preacher? Well, uh, I, I'll go ahead and readily grant to you that uh, that Leah was not in favor of her husband. But it might not have been Jacob doing the hating. It might have been Rachel doing the hating. We see this dynamic unfold before us in the life of Hannah and her uh, husband and uh, and his, his other wife, Penina, and her hatred of Hannah. She despised Hannah and loathed Hannah. And certainly that bears out, it seems, further on in the text of God's Word. For uh, in the very next chapter, Rachel begins to intensify her hostility towards Leah over the fact that Leah is bearing children. So it's interesting to consider what is taking place before us. To consider that turmoil and turbulence that must have existed in that home and what God was doing in two hurting lives that were hurting in different ways and yet God was working in both of them. Let me say I'm thankful God works in hurting lives. I'm glad when the world kicks us around, the Lord can work even in that pain. I'm glad when people we love mistreat us that God can even in that bring about His mercy and His grace and His wondrous work. Listen, you're not a victim tonight. 
you're a victor in Christ Jesus. Uh, we're not beholden to the to the machinations of man or the manipulations of man. You say, now preacher, people might do me wrong. They might, but God will always do you right. And let me say that when God does you right, He does you right better than man can do you wrong. Uh, there's too much of this victim complex in, in modern psyche. And I'm just telling you, listen, I, I, it don't matter how much people might hurt you, the Lord is able in the midst of that pain and that hurt to bring about things that are good for His glory and for the development of you spiritually to make you more like Christ. And that's really the lesson that we see here. But there's another uh, interesting thing I want to notice. This is the very first time in the entirety of the Word of God that you'll find a pretty important word. Notice the very last verse in our text. Verse 35. The Bible says, And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Did you know this is the very first time in the entirety of God's Word that the Holy Ghost ever breathed the word praise onto the Scripture pages. Very first time you'll ever find that word praise. Now, when I think about the idea of praise, of course, we mean acclamation, glory being rendered unto God, speaking of His goodness, speaking of His grace, speaking well of God and what He has done in our lives. But when I think of uh, the type of person that I would have considered to be the first torchbearer, the, the trailblazer for this idea of praise, it probably wouldn't have been this poor woman here. I would have certainly thought of someone like Joseph in his days of exaltation singing praise uh, to the Lord. Maybe I would have looked in the, a little further back and thought about Abraham whenever uh, he delivers Lot from the kings there in the Vale of Siddim and thought maybe that would be a good time uh, for the word praise to be put in there. I may have even thought about back in Genesis 15 when God ratifies that covenant and that promise with Abraham and righteousness is imputed unto him. I would have thought, now surely that would be a good place uh, to stop and praise the Lord. I would have went back to Noah when he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and God spared him from the destruction that was worldwide. And I would have thought maybe in the moments after that uh, ark came to rest and after they came out, that would have been a good time to stop and for the Holy Ghost to write the word praise. But all the way through 28 chapters of scriptural record, the Holy Spirit withholds the bestowing, withholds the uttering of this word praise until we come down to this broken and despised woman and we're told that she praises the Lord. Can I make three statements about that before we get into the message tonight? That tells me three things. One, it tells me this. Praise is possible. If Leah could praise God, then you and I can praise God. Something we'll notice as we move through the message tonight, her situation don't get no better. We don't find chapter 29 closing out with Jacob coming to her and in contrition and humility admitting that he's not been good to her, that he's not loved her, that he's not took care of her. It, it, don't, it don't wind down with him apologizing and taking, bringing her a rose and taking her to McDonald's to get a Big Mac to make up for it. It, it don't end that way. Instead, when we come to the end of chapter 29, Leah seems to be just as, as despised and just as neglected there as she did in the beginning of our text. And yet it is there that she praises God. If this woman could praise God, you and I can praise God. I do not know what you're facing in your life. And maybe you feel as though what you're going through is bigger 
than what she dealt with. But I think just as a mere example to us, God did not choose someone uh, who was kissed by fate, who had all of everything worked out, who was showered with favor and showered with gifts. He did not choose someone uh, who had all sorts of external and and visible uh, means and, and reasons to praise God, to use this word praise. He used this woman and it was not at a place of elevation or of exaltation in her life. Rather, it was at a place that is low, at a place that is unlonged for and unsought for, that he chose to say this woman praised God. Praise is possible. Let me make a second statement here. Not only is praise possible, but praise is proper. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't know about you, but this would not have been... If if I had been Leah, I probably would not have at this point praised God the way that she did. As we said a moment ago, her circumstances did not get any better. Uh, There was nothing marked. Here's what we think in our mind. I'll praise God when He's done something praiseworthy. Now probably none of us would utter that out loud. None of us would be honest enough with our soul to admit that. But stop and look at your praise record. Do you praise God only when He does things that you've asked Him to do or you've longed for Him to do? Or do you render praise unto Him because praise is proper? She didn't praise God because everything worked out. She praised God because she finally learned that He's worthy of praise whether things are working out or whether they're not. Then I notice a third thing here tonight. Not only is praise possible and is praise proper, but I notice as we study through our text that praise is a process. Or we might say it better this way, praise is a pathway. In other words, when we come to the beginning of this chapter, she's not praising God. When we come to the close of it, she is praising God. And this did not happen overnight. Every time she had a child, her dreams seemed to be revived and resuscitated. Every time, her dreams came crashing down. And in each of those disappointments, she learns more about who God is and grows closer unto Him. I'd say this tonight. She was praising God when she didn't feel like it. But it wasn't always that way. When you praise God is a good is a good metric, is a good test for your spiritual death. If you only praise God when things are easy, then probably your praise don't run very deep. But we're told of a man by the name of Job that he was a perfect man. He was an upright man. He feared God. He eschewed evil. And at the lowest moment of Job's life, he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, our praise is a good metric. The depth of it is a good determiner of where our spiritual growth is. Notice three things with me, and I've categorized it this way. We find lessons that she seems to learn. Things that God teaches her through this process. And I find three categories. The first we'll look at tonight are the lessons of her position or her situation, what was going on in her life. The second are the lessons of her pain. What did she learn in these moments of disappointment? And then we'll say a word before we close about the lessons of her praise. Because I think her life, uh, you know, there's a, there's a rule in, in biblical study that's called the rule of first mention. What that means is when something's mentioned the first time, there are certain qualities and characteristics uh, that it retains all throughout the Word of God. It's almost like God sort of sets a mold for us for a thought or a word or an idea and it carries certain characteristics. This is the first time praise is mentioned and we'll find that in this passage we learn some things about the power of praise, what it is 
and how we can praise God more often, more effectively in our lives. So let's look at these tonight together. Number one, I want you to notice with me the lessons of her position. Her situation is pretty easily summed up for us in verse number 31. The Bible says, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. There's probably a lot that the Holy Ghost leaves unsaid here. We do not have the curtains pulled back into the discord that undoubtedly roiled and boiled in that home. Undoubtedly there were fights and there was uh, discouragement and insecurity and pain and all sorts of things living in this home where not only is there confusion because there's two wives here simultaneously in the home, but also there is resentment and there is bitterness because one has something the other wants and the other has something that that one wants. Neither of them were satisfied. The Bible instead summarizes it in these three truths. Number one, I want you to notice that she is despised by her sister. I believe it was Rachel that truly hated her, that despised her for what she had. The Bible really tells us of the uh, the spite and of the hostility after the Lord opens uh, Leah's womb. Uh, early on in the marriage, of course, they've not none of them been married very long here, but it becomes apparent that God is going to permit Leah to bear many children unto Jacob. And she does in sort of two seasons of life. She bears these four boys uh, unto him early on. And then the Bible says she left bearing. And then Rachel uh, gives her handmaid unto Jacob. He begins to uh, to bear children. She begins to bear children for him. And then God opens Leah's womb again. And she begins to bear children unto him. But early on, it seems as though this is the dynamic that as we said a moment ago, one has what the other does not have, and that one has what that other one does not have, and it is a home that is eaten alive by envy. Uh, There's nothing more, and I want to be careful, and I want to be sensitive to the Lord in what I say here tonight. But it seems as though, and, and me and my wife never had to fight this battle, but I've sure pastored a lot of people uh, that do. Uh, when you want a home, and when you're asking God for a home, sometimes, man, it can be a challenge to see the home that God gives other people. They don't mean anything by it. They're not trying to rub anything in your face. But every time that you see them blessed with another child or blessed uh, with some kind of favor in their home, there's that, there's that battle that exists that lies within you before your flesh and, and your spirit as you're seeking to uh, praise the Lord for them and, and be grateful for what God is doing in their life. I'm saying it's really easy to see how Rachel could be bitter towards Leah. It's easy for her to imagine as she beholds uh, the fruitful womb of Leah bearing child after child after child and she herself feels inadequate. She herself feels as though she has been cast off by God and forsaken and that this one thing that she desires above all things is not given and granted unto her. I can see why Rachel uh, would be a little bitter. Can I say this? If we turn it around, I think it's easy to see why Leah could have been a little bitter. Uh, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that she wanted Jacob's choice. And Jacob knew that, and she knew that, and Rachel knew that. And Rachel, hurt by her own barrenness, uh, it seems as though she amplified and, and used that uh, fact, that truth of her favor with Jacob as sort of a knife to twist into the back of Leah. I guess what I'm trying to say here tonight, she wasn't in a good situation. 
It ain't always and only in the good situations that we learn to praise God. Sometimes it's in the hard situation that we learn that He's praiseworthy. She is not in a happy home. She is not in a happy situation. That we, we could easily say this tonight for her, there is no good way out of the circumstance that she's in. She cannot get her husband to love her. She cannot get her husband's wife, who is her sister, to quit hating her. She is in a dark and difficult situation. And somebody would say, well, preacher, you know, sometimes you can handle those things if there's somebody there to support you and encourage you. And I agree with you there. Uh, and when you got somebody to support you and encourage you, it makes a big difference. You can go through a lot of hard things when you got somebody that loves you that's present there. Let me say that every one of us that has a good spouse given of God, we ought to praise God for him. Because imagine how much harder this life would be if we were having to go it alone. What was Leah's situation? She had no one to be a support to her. Or at least she thought that she had no one. Not only is she despised by her sister and she's living in constant hostility and animosity, but her husband seems to be entirely indifferent to the pain that she's feeling. As I said, I don't really see a, a deep personal spite from Jacob towards Leah. I don't really see that anywhere in their history, to be honest. I tell you what it looks like to me. It just sort of looks like Jacob just treated her like she was nothing. He treated her like she was a house plant sitting somewhere in the corner. She got zero support from him in the pain that she was feeling. By the way, it's likely a man as wealthy as Jacob was and, and he had left out from his uh, father's house with nothing, but now he had been working in Laban's household. We learned that there's handmaids and there's servants. Probably not only was he neglectful of Leah, but probably of her, of her children as well. When you come later on to the characteristics of the boys in their life, it seems apparent that they did not have the kind of leadership and guidance that would have benefited them from an early age. I guess I'm saying this, not only was she in a dark situation, but she was alone in a dark situation. Not only was she going through something, she was going through something by herself. Uh, nobody understood what she was dealing with. Nobody could could reckon with what she was going through. And even if they could have, they had no interest in doing so. Can I tell you this? And we may have to learn this in a real way, especially as, as this world amps up its hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You ain't always going to have a fan club. You ain't. You ain't always going to have people clap for you when you do the right thing. One of the most nefarious and dark things, one of the most destructive things that I think has come out of the social media age is this idea that everybody ought to be clapping for us. You see it time and again, and I've seen it, and people will get on social media. Listen, if you're friends with 9 million people, you're going to find somebody that's happy about what you're doing, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, whether it's smart or whether it's dumb. There'll be somebody that's happy about what you're doing. And we live in a time where men's resolve is gauged by the applause and approval of other people. Uh, people no longer go to God to find out if what they're doing is right. They go and see how many likes they have. They see how many retweets they have. They see how many upvotes they have. And, and that's what dictates to them whether what they're doing is a good thing or a bad thing. And it has made us dependent upon the applause and approval of men. I see this with ministries all the time. And, and listen, I, I don't want to get into a whole big thing. I got a message to preach. But I see this with ministries all the time where they gauge and, and, and judge the effectiveness of their ministry by that social media reach, whatever it might be. Can I tell you something? Facebook ain't real life. 
Instagram ain't real life. I hate to tell you that. And I'm not saying you can't enjoy it. I'm not saying I got one. You probably got one. Uh, if we're not friends, it's because I don't have one. I'm not mad at you. Amen. But, uh, but, but I do have one. And, and what I'm saying is this. I'm not against it, but it ain't real life. The sooner you learn that ain't what the real world looks like, the more peace of mind you'll have. I'm trying to say this to you tonight. You may find yourself in circumstances where no one applauds what you're doing. Where no one's proud of what you're doing. Where no one's pleased. We could say it this way. You may find yourself having to go it alone for God with no support and with no one undergirding you. That certainly was Leah's position. But I see in our text here, not only is she despised by her sister, the Bible says that she was hated, and we can see that she was discarded by her spouse. He had no interest in helping her. But we notice a phrase here in verse 31. I'm sure you saw it, but let's notice it together. The Bible says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb. Now, isn't it always interesting when the Bible says that the Lord sees something or the Lord hears something or the Lord knows something? You say, preacher, why is that interesting? Well, because if we were just to speak in strictest terms, God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything. Nothing has ever entered into the realm of God's knowledge. It has all always lived there. So when the Bible says that the Lord saw something, it is not merely expressing Him observing it as a matter of factual truth or knowledge as a bit of trivia that works its way into His mind. But it is a statement of will that is made about Him. It's saying that God beheld, He turned His attention, He watched and noticed what Leah was going through. And as a product of that, the Bible says that He opened her womb. Now when we read further on in our text, we learn some of the things that God does through the opening of her womb and through the bearing of these children. But before we get there, can I just notice this? God saw what she was going through. He said, there's something I want to do in this situation. And He worked in her life to bring about an expected result. I'd say it this way. She's despised by her sister. She's discarded by her spouse. But she is developed by her sovereign God. God, in other words, looks at what's going on and He says, I can bring good for her and glory for me out of what's transpiring in her life. You say, preacher, I've, I, listen, I, I want to praise God, but I'm going through things you wouldn't even know. Well, number one, you might be surprised. You see a lot of things in ten years of pastoring. But number two, I may not know, I may not understand, I may not be able to empathize in the truest sense of the word. Though I can sympathize with you, I may not really be able to put myself in what you're going through and understand it. But can I tell you, there's a God that sits in glory that sees everything going on in your life. And you say, preacher, nobody knows what I'm going through. And those that know about it don't care about it. But the God of heaven is beholding what you're dealing with and He cares what you're going through. He sees and He works, just as He did in Leah's life. So we see the lessons of her position. She is a despised woman. She is a discarded woman. But she is a developed woman or a woman that God is working in her life to bring about His will and His desire. Number two, I want you to notice with me the lessons of her pain. Now pain, of course, is deeply connected 
with the event of childbirth, so I'm told. I ain't never been there. I've never done that. But I have had a headache before, so I know exactly what it's like. I've never been there. I've never experienced it. But I certainly have been in the room when my wife has borne my children. I've heard her say words I didn't even know she knew. Amen. And uh, squeezed my hand till it about broke. No, she was good when both of our boys uh, were born. But certainly the idea of pain is deeply associated with the bearing of children. But can I say this? It was not the bearing of the children that caused her the greatest pain. Listen now. It was the barrenness of her child bearing that caused her the greatest pain. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it was not the physical pain, but rather it was the disappointment that seemed to accompany each child that was born. You know, Leah had high hopes every time that she had a baby. And I think most women are that way. They carry a child in their womb for nine months and it becomes a part of who they are. There's no clocking out. There's no taking a break. And I think that most mothers spend a lot of time just imagining what the future holds for this little child that they are carrying. And Leah was no different from most mothers. She spent time thinking about what the introduction of this child into their life would truly mean. And with each child, she learns something about life and about the Lord. Let's notice them. There's three of them and then we'll get to Judah and we'll say a word and be done. The first one is found in verse 32. It's her firstborn son. It is Jacob's firstborn son. This is the first time that a child has entered their home. The Bible says that Leah conceived and bare a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Therefore, my husband will love me. Now, each of the truths that Leah relates in the naming of her child is what we call retroactive. Now, what I mean by that is she's talking and revealing something that's going on in her head and in her heart prior to the birth of that child because she's chosen these names and she's added and lended significance to the event. So when she has this first baby, here's what she says about it. She says, you know, the Lord has seen me He's been watching me. He's seen me suffer. And as payment for my suffering, He has given me this child. As a product of this child, my suffering will end. She says, therefore, my husband will love me. The first thing she learns is a truth about suffering. And what does she learn here? Well, two things. Number one, she learned the beholding of our suffering. She says, the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. She names her child Reuben, which means to behold or to see or to look. And he is a testimony. She has begun to recognize that she lives in the consciousness and awareness of God. She understands that that truth that we preached on a moment ago from verse number 31, by the time we get to verse number 32, Lee is on the same page. She knows that that's true. And she has no doubt that God in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, in His omniscience has beheld, has been aware of the suffering that she's been through. You know, one of the things we learn when we suffer in life is we learn the Lord's with us in the midst of our suffering. Nothing in life, no, no great truth of life is ever really learned until it is tested. It's part of the reason I think our society is in the shape that it's in, is 
we are parroting a bunch of unfelt and untested truth. And we do not let it live deeply within us. For a person to really grab hold of the truth, they've got to live it. And she learns through her suffering that the Lord has been present with her every day. I cannot really say or assess for sure the condition of her relationship with God. I can say two things about it. It's better than it used to be. And it's not as good as it's going to get to be before we're done. But wherever she was at in this journey and in this process, it's interesting to note that the first thing she really learns good about God is that when we're hurting, He's there. Isn't it interesting? You study through the Bible, and uh, if, if most commentators are correct, and I believe they probably are about this, the oldest book in our Bible is the book of Job. Now, of course, there are events in the book of Genesis that that record events earlier uh, than the book of, of, of Job. But the very first one pinned down was the book of Job. Now, isn't it interesting, and people believe that because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible which contained the giving of the law, and it's impossible to imagine that a person could have the discussion that Job has with his friends and with God and the law not be mentioned anywhere in there. And I think that's probably true. I, I agree with that statement. But isn't it interesting to note that the whole, the first book, the first book that the Holy Ghost said, man needs this pinned down and written. It was not a book about sanctification. It wasn't even a book, Brother Charlie, about salvation. It wasn't a book of prophecy. And it wasn't a New Testament epistle. The very first book that mankind needed was a book about suffering. Does not that bear testimony to you and I that suffering is number one, a way of life, but number two, an avenue of God's will and work in our life. It should be no surprise to us that the first lesson that Leah learns is a lesson about suffering. For suffering is part of the building blocks of the development of our faith. If we don't know how to suffer right, we don't know how to soar right. We don't know how to serve right. We don't know how to pray right until we learn that God is present with us. When things are not pleasant, we'll never walk with Him in communion and fellowship when things are pleasant. She learned the beholding of her suffering. But number two, I want you to notice she learned the blessing of her suffering. It's interesting what she believes here. It is predicated, it's based upon and founded in a mistruth. She says this, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore will my husband love me. She learns something about the blessing that God bestows upon her. And she has, I'm going to use a big word here, but I'm going to define it. She has a transactional view of suffering. In other words, she views it this way. I have suffered X number of events in my life. I have cried so many tears. I have experienced so much pain. And for God to bless me, He will have to remove or repay the suffering that I have experienced. Can I make a statement to you tonight? It's true. And the longer you live, the more you'll observe it. There's some folks that have never repaid their suffering on this side of glory. There are some, you listen to me not, I thought you might have heard that. I don't think you did. There are some folks that are never repaid their suffering on this side of glory. Job was a man that was. 
Job was not only repaid, Brother Charlie, he was paid over and above. God doubled what he had. But there's a lot of folks that suffer through their life and never on this side of glory do they ever see any commensurate or comparable payment for the suffering they experience. If your idea is this, if I suffer a little for God, God will give me a little. There's going to be times you're not going to praise Him. Because here's the reality. There will be times that you don't feel like you're getting out of your suffering what you're putting in to your suffering. Leah learns this, that God blesses her, but the blessing that God gave her did not ease her suffering. Rather, it enriched her suffering. God did not remove or repay her suffering, but He did repurpose it for her good and for His glory. You say, preacher, what do you think Leah wanted? Well, she tells us what she wanted. She had a child, but a child wasn't really what she wanted. The child was a means to Jacob's heart. You say, but God gave her a child. The child wasn't what she wanted. She just wanted Jacob to love her. And as we read a little further, we find out that it doesn't seem like anything changed in Jacob's feelings towards her. Now, when we come to the close of it all, it'll all come together and you'll see it. But can I just make this waiting statement right here so that we move on in our message. Sometimes when we pray, when we seek God, when we ask Him to do something in our situation, when we suffer and feel like we have suffered unjustly and we want God to move on our behalf, He does not just miraculously remove what we're going through, but He makes what we're going through a deep well of truth and of comfort and of spiritual growth and development that He might draw us closer unto Himself. And make us more in His image. You remember what the psalmist said about passing through the valley of Baca? The book of Psalms, which means the valley of weeping. He's talked about the righteous man. And he said this, he said, Passing through the valley of Baca, He maketh it a well. In a dry place, in a place of sorrow, in a place of weeping, God dug a well there. A place of sustenance, a place of support, and a place of supply for His people. It may be that God don't pull you through the valley any quicker than you want Him to, but it's possible He'll dig a well there and make what's going on there to your good and to His glory. I see here a truth that she learned about suffering. Well, it's that time again, and Leah is with child. Verse 33 says that she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. The name Simeon means heard. In fact, you can sort of hear a hint in his name and the name Samuel, the the, uh, suffix El being associated with Elohim, with the name of God in the Bible. And Samuel means heard of God. Simeon simply means to be heard. And it appears as though after Reuben was born, and Jacob did not change in his affections or attitude towards her, that Leah got serious about this matter and began to pray and to ask God to change Jacob's heart. And she believes that Simeon is the token, is the evidence of God's willingness to do this. That somehow Simeon, I don't know if he was a better looking kid or better behaved or he smelled better or what, but something about this boy, she says, this one's the key, this one will do the trick, God has heard my prayer and now He's going to change my circumstances. She learned a truth about supplication or about prayer in her life. The first thing I notice is that she was engaged in prayer. 
You say, now wait a minute, preacher, what do you mean? I mean this. If her, uh, if her being despised and hated, if her rejection did nothing else for her, it made her pray more. And that in and of itself was valuable enough for the entire trial and ordeal. You're not going to like what I'm about to say to you, but it's truth and I'm going to say it. If God don't bring anything out of your brokenness, but your brokenness. If God does not bring anything out of your sorrow, but your supplication. If He does not bring anything out of your pain, but your prayers. It has been worth every heartache. Prayer is the most neglected activity of the Christian. And sometimes God will let us go through some things because He hadn't heard from us in a while and He wants to hear from us. I would say this, we learned she was engaged in prayer. And she begins to pray and she begins to ask God to intercede and intervene on her behalf. And here along comes Simeon. And she makes an assumption. She says, this boy is the answer to my prayer. She says this, that... God heard that I was hated, therefore He hath given me this son also. She believes that He will be the the harbinger, the, the bringer of her relief. God heard and answered her prayer, just not in the way that she thought He would. She learned that prayer, listen carefully, prayer is not the enlisting of God on our side. Prayer is the inworking of God in our spiritual life. I understand what the Old Testament says about being on the Lord's side. I understand what the Bible says about God being on our side. I understand that when we pray, we're asking God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And I'm not trying to minimize any of that. But if you'd come at Leo with that, she would have laughed in your face. She would have said, I prayed and God heard, but God still didn't give me what I want. What did prayer mean to her? What did she learn God was doing in her prayer life? Well, she learned this. God may not be doing outwardly what I want, but He's doing inwardly more than I even asked for. She learned this, that prayer has more to do with God making us more like Him than it does us making Him do what we want and be more like us. Prayer is about molding us into the shape and image of God. It's not about getting Him to do what we want. It's about getting us to do what He wants. And she learned, maybe painfully, maybe through disappointment and through heartache, but she learned that prayer has greater power than merely to make her husband love her. Prayer not only, it could have made Jacob love her, but instead it made her love God even more. In our prayer life, we need to understand, and she learned painfully so, that prayer is not about treating God like our bellhop uh, so that He can report to duty and do what we wish. Now, I'm thankful God does. Hey, listen, He fights on behalf of His people. I'm glad that He answers and that He works in our life. But prayer is not merely about giving God orders. God already knows what you pray for before you ever prayed for it. So why do we pray? We pray because the prayer transforms us and makes us more like Him. Well, it's that time again. Verse 34, and Leah is with child again. The Bible says, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. The name Levi means joined or attached. And she says this, surely now, I'll have the relationship with my husband that I have so longed for. It's interesting 
The very next child that she has is Judah. And we know what she says about Judah, that she praises the Lord for him and for what God had done through him. But here she's still clinging to this hope that Jacob will change his attitude towards her. She's still believing that she can find satisfaction in her relationship with him. I thought this was interesting. She learned a truth about suffering, a truth about supplication, but she learned a truth about satisfaction. And the first thing we notice is the spurning of a desired relationship. She thought, surely now with three sons, it will be apparent to Jacob that Rachel will never bear him any children, that if he has any hopes of an heir, if he has any hopes of a family, if he has any hopes of boys that can take care of him in his old age, that he will have to cast her off and pursue only me, and I will finally have the relationship that I've longed for. But the sad truth is she was wrong. See, here's the reality. Love makes you do irrational things. And Jacob loved Rachel. His love of Rachel had nothing to do with her bearing of children. He loved her before he ever knew that she was barren. And he continued to love her even after she was barren. His love of her had nothing to do with anything except his heart and desire for her. And he did not love Leah. Let me say this. He had a responsibility once he married to Leah. He had a responsibility to love her. I'm going to say that again. When he married her, he had a responsibility to love her. Because love is not defined by emotion. It is dictated by action. And he had a responsibility to love her, but he did not love her. And the truth is, nothing was going to change that. This undoubtedly was probably the most crushing determination and realization that Leah made. She realized in this moment, you know, if I've borne him three kids and he don't love me now, chances are he's probably never going to love me. We see the spurning of a desired relationship. But I thought this was interesting. Remember I told you that everything, every time she names one of her children, it's always retroactive. It's always says something about her frame of mind in between the previous child and that child. It always speaks to what's been living in her heart. When she mentions praise about Judah, she's evidently talking about a change that God made in her heart between the bearing of Levi and the bearing of Judah. And here's what I believe happened. You can disagree with me about this if you'd like. You'll have to take a number. But I believe that we see not only the spurning of a desired relationship. Jacob was never going to love her the way that she desired. When she finally let go of that, we see the satisfaction of a divine relationship. In other words, the thing that changed Brother Charlie was who she was looking to for happiness. As long as she was looking to Jacob to give her peace and to give her contentment and to give her purpose, she was never going to find it. But when she quit looking to Jacob and started looking to Jehovah, she found what she needed. Sometimes the relentless, relentless disappointment of life is meant to discourage us from seeking anyone other than God. I don't know about you, but I'm hard-headed. Sometimes God has to show me by example and by experience that nothing will satisfy but Him. And what does that look like when He does that? Well, it means pursuing something, grabbing hold of it, and finding out it ain't what you thought it was going to be. Getting things, clawing for things, attaining things, earning things, and getting them and finding out that it was not what you thought it would be. It did not satisfy the way that you hoped. That it would. And that's what we're seeing unfold here for Leah. 
it's interesting to note that it is Levi that brings her to this place of reconciliation to God. For the Levites, the descendants of Levites, would be the arbiters of Israel's relationship with the Almighty. They, more than anyone else under Mosaic law, would make it possible for man to fellowship with God. She learned the truth that Levi's descendants would learn. That peace and contentment... You remember the Levites, they were permitted to marry and to have families because that's God's natural order of things. But they were not permitted to have land or, or, or own things unto themselves. Their portion was the Lord. And God was in that teaching them that nothing earthly would satisfy, that only that which is heavenly could satisfy them. And isn't it interesting that it was this boy, their ancestor, the source of their lineage that taught this very lesson to his own mama. And he did not do it through wisdom and he did not do it through explanation, but he did it by being the token of her disappointment. She recognized that if Jacob wasn't going to love her by now, he probably never would but that God had always loved her and that God was enough. I'm going to say that again. She learned that Jacob probably never loved her, but that God always loved her and that God is enough. Is enough. I see the lessons of her pain. Can I just read these to you in closing? You say no, because you'll say you will, but then you won't. You'll preach them. That's what you're thinking. But I see in these closing statements in verse 35, the lessons of her praise. The Bible says that she conceived again, bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, which means praise. And the Bible says she left barren. Now, there's three things I notice about this. But remember, each of the boys, when they're born, the declaration she makes reflects something about what she's learned in between the last child and this child. You know, and that's the way, that's the way raising kids are. Every child you have teaches you more about how to parent the next one. That's why usually the baby winds up the best. Somebody say amen to that. You just get better and better at it till you reach the state of utter perfection. And she learned things and learned things and learned things. But what can we learn from her statement? Well, I noticed three things and I'll mention them very quickly. One, we learned that praise was the product of her affliction. Had she never suffered the way she suffered, had she never went through what she went through, she would have never praised God the way that she praised God. It's amazing how nearsighted we can all be. We can listen to people stand up and give praise to God, talk about how God healed them, delivered them from something. God made a way. God paid a, a great financial bill or, 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 or thing that they had. How God reconciled them to their kids or reconciled them to their spouse. And we hear God, all these testimonies about what God has done when they're praising. We say to ourselves, I want that in my life. But has it ever dawned on you that there was a moment right before the light broke through and things were not pleasant when, when, when the scans hadn't come back clear? when the provision hadn't showed up at the doorstep, when the kids were still out messed up and broken in the world, when the marriage was still shot all to pieces, a moment of darkness and affliction that person had to go through before God answered miraculously. We don't look at it that way, do we? We want all the praise, but none of the pain. But here's the reality. Praise for her at least was the product of her affliction. She couldn't have praised God the way she did if she hadn't gone through what she went through. Number two, I notice this. Praise was the purpose of her blessing. 
Now the Bible says three words to close this chapter. It says of Leah that she left bearing and left bearing. Now there's two ways we can understand this. We could suggest by this phrase that the intimacy that she pursued with Jacob ceased. That she grew satisfied in her relationship with God. And basically, just to put it simply, she said, well, if Jacob don't want me, I ain't going to make him spend time with me. That's possible. It's equally possible that Jacob continued to perform his responsibilities as a husband, but that God did not permit her to bear any more children, at least for a season. And that, I think, is probably the more likely thing. When we come later on in the life of of Leah and Rachel, she does not seem to have, have given up in having a relationship with Jacob. And there's no reason to believe that she gave up in having a relationship with Jacob here. But rather that at this moment, God finally closed her womb for a season. And for a time, she would later go on to bear children. What does that suggest to us? Well, it suggests to us not only was praise the product of her affliction, but praise was the purpose of her blessings. God continued to bless her with children until she came to a place where she began to praise Him, and rightly so. And then all of a sudden, God closes her womb. I want to be careful with what I say here. I do not want to make God seem unkind, but I do want to make Him seem as divinely and sublimely practical as God sometimes is in our life. Sometimes the reason God's doing the bad things in your life is to get you to praise Him. Sometimes in your life, God's doing the good things to get you to praise Him. And the the sum total of that statement being this, whether they're good, whether they're bad, we shouldn't quit praising Him. God is doing good things in your life, not just because He thinks you deserve it. Because don't none of us deserve it. God ain't doing good things in your life because He thinks you're owed a little bit after what you've been through. Because the truth is, He don't have to bless you in that way and He certainly didn't in Leah's life. So why is He blessing you? Because He's wanting to elicit praise from your life and your lips. I see that praise was the product of her affliction. It was the purpose of her blessings. But finally, I would say this, that praise was the peace of her heart. If you read on into chapter 30, you find that Rachel discouraged and disheartened by her barrenness, she goes and takes her handmaid and gives her handmaid unto Jacob and says, bear children by her, just like Sarah had with Hagar earlier in the in, in the scriptural record. And uh, Jacob begins to bear children by uh, her, by Rachel's handmaid. When Leah sees this, she grows envious. And she then gives her handmaid unto Jacob to bear children by him. Later on, God will once again open both these women's wombs. And uh, Leah will go on to bear Issachar and Zebulun and Asher and some other children. And Rachel, of course, bore only Joseph and Benjamin unto Jacob. But it's interesting to note when the Bible says she left bearing, she didn't start bearing again or she did not start pursuing Jacob again in the same way until something disrupted and discontented her heart. What does that suggest to me? It suggests this to me, that when she learned to be satisfied with God, she learned to be satisfied with life. She praised the Lord, and in that praise, she found a source of peace that contented her. Sadly, she forfeits that peace a little later on, and there's a whole message we could preach that we won't take time to about envy and about allowing things to rob us of our joy. But where we find Leah at the close of this chapter is simply here. She is a woman that has learned that though all she has is God, God is enough. 
that in Him she finds peace, she finds contentment. It's not to say that we don't find peace and joy in the homes that God gives us and the good things that God does for us, nor do I think God resents that. If God didn't want us to enjoy His blessings, He wouldn't bless us. But it is to say this, the moment that we think that our contentment and our peace comes from those things, comes from the gift instead of the giver, is the moment that we give up the peace that we enjoy and that results from our praise. She found that when she praised the Lord, she had peace. When she was constantly looking for the next thing to give her contentment, she couldn't grab hold of it. It went like smoke through her fingers. But now that she said, you know what? God's enough. I trust Him. He's in control. She found there that contentment lay. I wonder in our life what God's doing to try to get us to praise Him. And I wonder if we're allowing this peculiar pathway to praise to be followed in our life if we're doing, if we're becoming what God desires for us to be. Let's bow together this evening. The altar is open. I want to give you an occasion to speak with the Lord tonight if He's spoken to your heart. Miss Connie's going to play for us as soon as she's ready. But I wonder what God's been doing in your life. And I wonder in what He's doing, what He's been trying to shape and make you into. Undoubtedly, He's trying to make you more into His image. And undoubtedly, He's trying to bring you to a place of praise. I wonder if you'd allow Him to do that tonight in your heart and in your life. Father, bless the invitation. May it glorify Your Son in Jesus' name. These are praying. We have all the time we need. God touched your heart. I want